We are continuing our series, Searching for Sophia. We are asking God for wisdom as we address uh, some very challenging questions. The questions that I'm going to address this morning are as follows. Do you believe that people who don't claim Jesus as their Savior deserve to be sent to hell? If so, why? Is hell really supposed to be a place people go to spend eternity? I always thought that is where bad people or sinners go. So does that mean a serial rapist or a murderer who lives their entire life doing evil things believes that Jesus died on the cross? Then they still get to go to heaven? And on that note, a person who spends their life trying to be a good person, following the Ten Commandments, believing in God, but hasn't completely come around 100% to believing that Jesus died on the cross for them will go to hell. If God is good and just, how can there be a hell? How does the punishment of eternal burning hell make any sense with a loving God? The punishment seems so much more severe than the offense. Or as I boil them down, what's up with hell? Father in heaven, we do ask that you would give us your wisdom this morning. Father, we need you in this place this morning. May your presence fill this room, God, and may it open hearts and open minds, Father, to receive you and your word this morning. And all who agreed said... Amen. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine recently, and he was asking me what uh, our sermon series was on, and I was telling them uh, the name of this, this message I was about to give this week. It's called, What's Up With Hell? And he said, well, the first thing is that hell is downward. And he said this in all seriousness, as far as I could tell, that hell was downward. See, his response has this tinge of the 16th century mentality that says, Hell lays below the surface of the earth, and it's full of molten lava, where stalagmites are hanging from the ceiling, and people have their skin melting off their bones for all of eternity. I think our world needs a drastic revisioning of hell. I think our world needs a biblical envisioning of hell. And as much as I don't really want to have this conversation because it's been so divisive, even in recent years, this conversation has been so divisive within evangelical Christianity. I believe that there is no greater time in our history that this conversation needs to happen. That this conversation on hell is imperative and that we must have this conversation. We must wrap our mind around it. We must understand exactly what the Bible says about it. It is of crucial importance Because as our world becomes more and more post-Christian, it is so because of these dusty old doctrines like hell and the God who presumably sends people there. They've been allowed to persist, and unless this world can embrace the God who is love and the God who is life, then the world is going to continue to perish. So if you were to take the train down to Temple University, just like we did last week, if you might remember, if you were to take the train down to Temple University and ask the average college student what they thought about hell, they'd probably tell you that an angry, vengeful God sends all of the people that he doesn't like to this place of eternal torment. All the bad people go to hell. Because we would certainly never treat anybody like that. Right? To put our, even our worst enemies in eternal torment. We wouldn't do that. We are not that cruel. So if you're telling me that hell is real, then I'm going to tell you that your God is a monster. And then he'll continue. I mean, really think about it, right? The idea of hell as fire and brimstone, it may have been fine before Auschwitz in World War II. 
But if you're telling me that hell is just one giant incinerator where God says all the people he's opposed to go, that's what you're telling me hell is like, then I'm going to tell you that your God is just like Hitler. Oh, actually, you know what? Your God is worse than Hitler because at least the torture that Hitler put the Jews through, at least that ended. But you're telling me that hell is eternal, fire and brimstone, that the, that the skin will forever melt off the people's bones and as they, as they last forever in this incinerator? Your God is a monster. How can you believe such a horrible doctrine? It seems whenever you hear about hell, right, it implies that God is against us. That our vision of hell gives us this impression that it is a place created because God is smiting unruly minions. That's where he puts all the people who oppose him. And God is against us, so that's where he puts and he punishes his people. But here's the first biblical reality that I want to chew on this morning. God finds no pleasure in the reality of hell. And that God is absolutely for you. Do you guys get that? God is for you. He finds no pleasure in hell. God is for you. Let's look at Ezekiel 18. It says this in verse 30. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. What did he just say? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Do you see how God is pleading with his people? Repent and live. Why will you perish? Why will you die? I do not take pleasure in the death or the destruction of anyone. Throughout world history, right, God, God didn't look down on Hitler after he committed suicide and said, good, finally that one's done away with. Good, we can move on. Good, Hitler is dead. Good. Man, we're the ones who look on a person like Hitler and we say, man, finally, he got what he deserved. Man, God wants us to come to life. He looks on a person like Hitler and says, Hitler, why are you rejecting me? I long for you to have life. I long for you to be made alive. Hitler, I love you. Now, we don't say that, though, but our God does. God finds no pleasure in the destruction of anyone, right? Look at verse 30. God is not ruining us. We are ruining ourselves. Change your heart, please. Change your heart. God finds no pleasure in any human condition that is not at the highest level of life, and I have to believe that. That God longs desperately for all of us to come to life. He finds no pleasure in destruction. He is for us. He does not desire to send anybody to hell. He actually came and he died so that we would not have to go there. You know, our vision of hell has been constructed from 12 New Testament verses. From these 12 verses, we have created doctrines and fought wars. We have divided Christianity we have written hundreds of books, and we have written a hundred more books in response to those first hundred written. And as I've read several of these books, what perplexes me is how few of them actually take the larger biblical story in mind as they develop their doctrine on hell. And of course, knowing me, where are we going to start? Genesis. All right, thank you. I'm glad that's setting in. Let's start at the beginning. 
We need to understand the larger biblical narrative. We need to understand the larger biblical story if we are going to understand what the Bible is trying to say about hell. And so here's how it begins, right? And it actually begins before the Bible in, in some ways. Uh, at some point prior to the creation of humanity, there was an angel in the heavenly court who rebelled against God. We know this angel uh, as the devil. This angel gathered other like-minded angels. He left God's presence and began wreaking havoc on God's good creation. It is because of this we are told that God created the realm we call hell. And so notice that hell was not created for humanity. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. We read in Matthew 25, for instance, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Right? He creates humanity for a place called God's kingdom, his heaven. But depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for who? The devil and his angels. And so the point of this passage in some respects is to say that those who agree with the devil will receive the devil's fate. Meanwhile, as the story continues, God, who is himself the embodiment of love, created humans to be like him. He placed them in the garden with the notion that they ought to rule, co-rule alongside of him, give them authority to govern alongside God, with God, his good creation. And so in other words, we were created with the full authority of love, or in other words, we were created with a purpose. We're created with a purpose. God had a great intention in mind when he created us. He created humanity so that we would represent him and that we would share his authority on this earth. And so what does God do? He just doesn't mold the dirt of the ground. He actually breathes into the dirt of the ground to create humanity. He gives us his very image that we might take the love of himself, pour it out into us, and we would reflect it back to himself, and we would reflect it all throughout creation. That is the role that humanity was intended to play. We would be image bearers of God, reflecting his love back to himself, reflecting his love to all of creation. That is the great purpose for humanity. But this love, as I've said so many times before, had to be chosen. If it was to be genuine, if it had to be real, then it had to be chosen. Otherwise, we'd just be a bunch of robots, and you can't have a relationship with robots. And so what does God do? He places two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, please, choose life. Choose me. Do not rebel against me, or you will die. Choose life. But the havoc Satan was most eager to wreak is on God's prized creation, humanity. And so he tells Adam and Eve the same lie he told himself. Why be content with co-ruling? Why do you just want to be a vice lord, man? Why don't you just sit by yourself on the throne? You could be like God. You could be the ruler. You could have the authority. You could be God. Authority could be solely yours. You could sit on the throne all by yourselves. Why not be the king? Why share your authority? Why not be the king? And as we know, they bought into the lie, and all of a sudden they could no longer fulfill their role that God had intended them to fulfill. Their nature was no longer like God's. Their default now was not to reflect God's love back to himself and to reflect his love out into the world. Their default now was to say, solely I am the one I will love. I will love myself first. I will love myself only. Solely, I am the one I will love. You see, humanity's purpose was tainted and broken. 
God did not intend us to rule over ourselves, but to co-rule and partnering in governing his creation. So the question is, what do you do with tainted and broken things? Right? Really, what is the value in something that doesn't do what it's supposed to do, that doesn't function like it's supposed to function? Yesterday, I was removing the wallpaper from my daughter's bedroom, and I hear this crash. She had pulled a sound machine off of her dresser, and it shattered all over the floor. Luckily, she wasn't hurt by it. It didn't fall on top of her. You know, someone designed and created that sound machine to do something specific, right? They, they designed it so that it would create calming ocean wave-like sounds. And that the rainfall would soothe our children to sleep at night. That's why that person created this sound machine. But that sound machine won't do that anymore. And she didn't sleep well last night, right? The sound machine is broken. It shattered on the floor. There were wires sticking all <laughs> out of it in weird places. And it was all cracked and broken. And so what am I supposed to do with it? I can't do what it was created to do, so what should I do with it? Well, I think there are a lot of things that I could do with it. Most of them are absurd, though, if you think about it, right? I could put it as a centerpiece on our table, right? Emily would like that, and all of our guests would like that nice, beautiful centerpiece. It's, it wouldn't be a good centerpiece. It's not created to be a centerpiece. It's not why the designer created it to function. There are other things that people design to be centerpieces. This is not one of them. And so I really only have two viable options. I could fix it, right? I could fix it. I could replace the broken pieces and reattach the wires, and perhaps it would once again make the noises that soothe our daughter to sleep at night. Or what's my other option? I could throw it away. I could throw it away. So you need to understand that we are all broken sound machines in the hands of a loving God. And he has two options as to what to do with us. He can fix us. You see, we all have this problem. We don't function like God created us to function. The Bible calls it sin. It's done horrible things to our relationships and to our households and to our workplaces. It's done horrible things to ourselves and basically the world in general, right? It's done horrible, horrible things. It is what is wrong with the world and all the death and the decay and the rotting of the world that we experience as we watch the, the nightly news and we experience as anger lashes out against anger in our households and just the, the, the rotting and the decay within our households. This is all born from the sinful condition that we all have. And so in order to fix us, God has taken care of the problem of sin by taking the problem of sin upon himself. He died so that we would not have to die, which is the punishment for sin. God has wiped out every past and present and future sin, and he has given us a fresh start. God has fixed us. Amen? But what is agonizing to me, and I think should be agonizing to you about the reality of this, is that God has paid the ultimate price, right? God has paid the ultimate price to fix his creation. He became a man and he died and he rose from the dead. He experiences torturous death to avert the final ruin of his creatures. God has gone to infinitely great lengths to avert the final ruin of his creatures. Get that in your mind. He has extended mercy and forgiveness and grace and love and he has poured it out in abundance upon humanity. And yet this very fact still remains. There is so much love from God, and yet, there is still hell. 
You see, God has done everything he can to fix us. He has done everything he possibly can to fix us. He has provided a way to regain our purpose and to model him and to function like he functions, to reflect himself back to himself and to reflect out to the world. He has done everything he possibly can to bring us back to that state. But the challenge in being fixed is that the secret lies in dying to the sinful condition. The self-reigning heart, that old sinful self. The secret lies in placing our trust in God rather than ourselves. And so really, it's not about being good. It's not about how many good things you can do to avert the final ruin of hell. It's not about being bad. It's not that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's not what it's about. It's about the sinful condition, the self-reigning heart that needs to be put to death. It's about keeping your throne intact or letting your throne be destroyed. And the person who looks bad on the outside may have destroyed their throne. And they're in a process now of being good. And the person who looks really good on the outside may have still had their throne intact. They may not care about God and Jesus, about what he has done. They may just, by nature, be a good person. It's about a self-reigning heart and the direction that a heart is faced. It's our heart bent in on ourselves and we are self-prioritizing, we only care about ourselves or have, by the mercy of God, been able to bend our heart outwards back in reflection of love for God and reflection of others. The secret lies in self-surrender. But the nature of self-surrender is that it's a choice to do so. No one can make you surrender and you have every right to refuse to surrender. You don't have to hold up your white flag if someone comes into your little personalized kingdom. You can stay strong. You can equip the castle to stay strong. And a lot of people would rather live in their self-made kingdom, declare themselves to be king, than submit to the surrender to another person. And we see it all the time, right? A lot of people hold on to the mentality, even while their castle is crumbling to the ground, right? Have you ever experienced someone who is so hell-bent on something that it doesn't matter what you say or what you convince them of, they're going to continue to do what they do because they're the king of their castle? Anybody know anybody like that? Anybody in this room like that? I'm that way sometimes. I get that. I am the king of my life, right? Don't tell me how I should run my kingdom. How many times have you heard that in the last couple weeks? That's a real problem. If I'm not willing to surrender my heart to the, to the enthronement of another king, that is a real problem. Because the nature of freedom... Because the nature of freedom... Because God is love, that means that some people in the end are not going to be redeemed. That some people will stand on their throne, some people will stand in their kingdom and say, no, I'm not surrendering. I am the king of my castle. No, I am not surrendering. Some people will refuse even to their dying breath to surrender, and love has done all that it possibly could to save us. But love also has to give us the choice to reject it. That is the love, that is the choice love requires. And so for those who do not reclaim their purpose by surrendering and being an image bearer of God, once again reflecting his love back to himself, reflecting his love onto the world, if we do not regain and restore the initial intended relationship, then there will come a day when our usefulness wears out. When the image of God that is left, the remnant will shrivel up into nothing as we stay strong upon our throne. We stay strong within our kingdom. There will come a day when that will wear out. 
And God's only option of what to do with us then is to throw us away. You see, in a lot of ways, hell is like God's garbage can. You see, in all 12 of those references on hell, the Greek term used is Gehenna. Gehenna was a conjunction of two Greek words, meaning the Valley of Hinnom. It was the valley that still exists outside of Jerusalem. It runs along the southwest border of Jerusalem. And Gehenna had a history, it had a purpose, and it had a reputation. See, whenever Jews thought about this place, they were quickly reminded of the intense wickedness and the pagan idolatry that took place there. The Israelite kings Ahaz and Manasseh both sacrificed their children in this valley to the detestable god Molech of the Ammonites. It eventually became a mass grave for pagan idolaters. It's where they threw criminals. It's where they threw wild animals after they had died. To the Jewish mind, it became the symbol of unrestrained evil. The Jews began to talk about the Valley of Hinnom eventually as the house of the devil. It was the valley towards evil and the gateway to the grave. But they didn't mean that it was literally those things. They just meant that this is the place where unrestrained, horrible atrocities took place. This is where evil resides. The Valley of Hinnom is where evil resides. And in Jesus' day, the Valley of Hinnom was also Jerusalem's garbage dump. Literally. It was the garbage dump. It was where people took their broken pottery and their broken things and the things that they did not have any use for, and they threw it into the Valley of Hinnom because in the Valley of Hinnom, the government decided they were going to have a fire that burned 24-7 to consume all of the things that the people no longer wanted, the things that no longer served their purpose, the things that were broken. You see, God's going to allow us to live into whatever purpose we create for ourselves. That is the freedom a love relationship requires. And if our choice, even after a lifetime of pursuit to the contrary from God, is to live into our manipulated natures, then he's going to allow us to live into it. He was going to grant us that choice. Because when we live apart from God, we are wasting our lives. When we are not doing what God has intended us to do as creatures of himself, we are wasting our lives. We are wasted lives. Hell is the choice to live a life that is wasted because we are not living the life God created us to live. And so in all the references to hell, Jesus is not trying to give us descriptors of what it's going to be like. Dante did, did a lot of disservice, I think, by creating Inferno and giving us these images of hell as fire and brimstone and skin melting off bones for all of eternity. Jesus isn't interested in, in casting a, a, an actual image of what hell is going to be like. Rather, he is stating that it is the realm occupied by those who do not function in the way that God has intended them to function. Or in other words, it is the realm where the self-reigning go. It's the realm where God will let you be king. You're so insistent on being king, God is going to let you live as king. But consider the nature of self-reign, right? We just watched that video on solitary confinement, what it does to the human psyche. And of course, the biologists will say that some biological phenomenon took place several billion of years ago and, and created us to be uniquely wired to be in relationship. But we know that we serve a Trinitarian God, that we are made in the image of a Trinitarian God, a God who is in relationship. 
We were made to be in relationship to him and to one another. That is how God designed us to be. But consider that you have established your self-reign kingdom, right? You have established your castle and you are living in your castle. You have a self-reigning heart. Your nature is to rule over everyone and everything. That is what you want to do. You want to be the king. You want to rule over everything. But recognize that everybody else has the same sinful problem, right? You want to reign over your world. I want to reign over my world. So if I come into your world trying to reign over your world, what's the result? War. Get out of my kingdom. I don't want you here. Get out of here. This is my kingdom. These are my rules. This is how I live my life. Don't tell me how to live my life. Get out of here. It's not to submit to another person. That is not the default of the human condition. It's not to submit. It's not to love. It is to sit upon our selfish thrones and to say, get out of here. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. Don't tell me how to rule my life. You know, one of the things that the New Testament says about hell is that it is a place where there is weeping and there is gnashing of teeth. Maybe some of you have heard that before. And so think of the man in solitary confinement. He's enslaved to isolation in his self-made kingdom. And what did the, what did the commentaries say? They're going crazy. And, and they spend their nights weeping and they spend their days pacing back and forth. And they're going insane, literally insane, after just a couple months of being in solitary confinement. They're weeping and they're wailing and they're crying over the bitterness of being alone outside of relationship and outside of loving contact. They just want to be touched, the one guy said. I just wish someone would touch me. And and if no one will touch me in a loving way, then I'll, I'll have them touch me in an abusive way. I don't care. I just want physical touch. But here's what's interesting about the self reigning heart, right? We know that we are designed to be in community and in relationship. But we also realize that the secret desire of the self-reigning heart from the beginning is to be left alone. Right? Because at the core of every self-reigning sinful action and motive is this deep-seated desire to be left alone. And so as we've seen, people who experience solitary confinement for just a few short months end up a mess of constant tears and sorrow over their own existence. It's a horrible condition to be in. It's the place of weeping. It's the place of crying and mourning over the condition that has been lost. You, You hate the condition that you're in. You know that you were not created for this. You know that you are created to be in relationship. And so the natural response is to cry and to mourn and to weep. The twist, however, is that it is also a place of gnashing teeth. See, to gnash at someone is a violent act of what? Lashing out. Right? If there's, if there's a, a, a dog, for instance, that... that that hates your presence, what is the dog going to do? It's going to jump at you. It's going to bite at you. It's going to gnash its teeth at you. And so the irony and the twist is that you hate your existence. You hate your existence so much that you're, you're weeping and you're crying and you're mourning over your existence, but within your own self-made little kingdom, you would have it no other way. Anybody comes into your kingdom trying to embrace you and trying to 
care for you and your concern. You, gnash, you lash out at them and you gnash your teeth at them. Get away from me. I don't want you here. Don't come into my kingdom. This is my kingdom. Yes, I hate my existence. Yes, I'm weeping and I'm crying and I know that I'm broken and messed up. Yes, I hate it, but don't, don't come near me. I, I don't have anything to fix. You don't need to fix me. Come on, don't come near me. At the core of every self-reigning sinful action and motive is the deep-seated desire to be left alone. Or the bottom line is hell is the realm where God lets you win. You're not going to surrender. You're not going to surrender. You're going to declare yourself to be king. And there you're going to suffer the horrible isolation of self-authority. And to me, my friends, that is a far darker and sadder and far more horrifying image of hell than anything that Hollywood could come up with. But it is the picture of hell that the Bible offers us. And so to conclude, I want to offer two thoughts on why hell exists. The first one, as we've discussed, is that hell exists because God is a God of love. And I know that this may seem paradoxical and kind of contradictory, but we've discussed why, right? We've already discussed why. Have you guys ever been in love with someone who didn't love you in return? Yeah? I remember when I was in eighth grade, I, uh, I was dating a girl, whatever that means to an eighth grader. I was uh, dating a girl, and um, I realized after about two weeks of this, I couldn't go on any longer. And uh, so I broke it off. But I kept receiving these notes from her, and I, I, I kept finding her hanging out at the locker room, and she would try to find me at the lunch tables, and me breaking it off really didn't convince her that it was broken off, evidently. I remember one note in particular. I still might have it in some shoebox somewhere at my parents' house. Literally every single line of the margin, on both sides of the margin, on both sides of the page, said, I love you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> this is crazy, right? This girl is whacked, and so i got to get away from her. And so I, I start avoiding her bus stop, and I make other pathways through the, uh, through the school to avoid her locker. I make sure that I sit as far from her at the lunch table as I possibly can because, man, this girl's crazy. Have you guys ever been in love with someone that didn't love you in return? Have you ever been loved by someone who you didn't love in return? Man, you don't want to be with that person. You want to get as far away from that person as possible. And, and, and this love, love that this girl had for me is a, is a small fragment of the great, abounding, relentless love that God has for his creation. And, and if we don't want to be near God's love, then we're going to do all that we can to get away from it. Hell doesn't exist because God doesn't love his people. Hell exists because we do not love God. When Jesus approached Jerusalem just before he was to die, he said this in Matthew 23. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing I mean, what is God to do if he longs to envelop humanity in his compassion? And he longs to envelop humanity in his love and in his grace and his forgiveness. What is God to do if he longs to do all of this, but we will have nothing to do with it? 
Right? Hell exists because God reviews, refuses to override our will. I want to hold you. I sent prophets to you to, to bring your, you back to me, but you would have nothing of it. You killed those prophets. You stoned them to death and you dragged them into cisterns where they rotted. You killed the prophets. You killed my messengers of love to you. And yet I still long for you, Jerusalem. I still long for my people. But you were not willing to receive me. You were not willing. And so why won't God just override our bad choices then? Come on, God, why won't you just override our bad choices? Yeah, we did some bad things. Yeah, we rejected you. But come on, God, why won't you just override them? And the reason he won't override them is because God loves you. Right? Love is really the theme of the universe. And how you choose to relate to this love is how you will be positioned in eternity. I think of the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. Jesus is standing at the door. He says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with them and he with me. But man, God really can't. Why can't you just come and knock down the door? Wouldn't that be the loving thing to do? Come on, God, just knock down the door. But if we persist on locking the door from the inside, if we persist on keeping God out, then he will let us live in our self-made prisons. C.S. Lewis said that hell is locked from the inside. God will not override our will because he will not negate the love he has for us. And that love is a choice that we must make to receive it. The second reason I think hell exists is because God must stop the violence. How many of you are convinced that our world is in a bad condition? Do I, do I need to spend time convincing anybody of that this morning? ISIS, again, is um, on their campaigns chopping off heads on national television. Right, husbands beat wives, husbands and mothers beat children. Home invasions happen regularly in our area. People kill one another for stuff. I don't have to convince you guys that our world is in a bad condition. And that horror and that violence is not okay with God. Malachi 4, as he is describing the great and terrible day of the Lord, when God is going to take all of the destruction and the horror of the world, he's finally going to do away with it. He says this, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Right? He's going to do away with all the destruction and all the evil in the world. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. You will frolic on this day, day, terrible day of the Lord. Then you will trample on the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. It's a hard passage. It's a hard passage describing what this day will be like when fi God finally does away with all the evil and destruction in the world. There's a day coming when one more person will not be killed for taking another person's stuff. There's coming a day when a husband will no longer beat his wife and where ISIS will no longer have authority to rule and to reign. 
God is going to stop the violence. And if your soul, if in your soul you refuse to relinquish your right to hurt and abuse another person, if you, relin- if you fail to relinquish your right to hurt and abuse other people, then God will have to stop you in another way. If you will not humbly submit to God in love, then God will have to stop you in another way. God will allow you to be an ash consumed by the fire. And I love how it says that those abused and those who hurt will dance. They will frolic because they're no longer going to have to fear you. If he cannot stop us by changing our hearts, he will stop us in another way. His good creation will be restored. One way or another, his good creation will be restored. He is going to bring an end to the violence and to the abuse. I'm going to invite Emily up. We're going to spend a few moments reflecting on this. I want to read one last passage to conclude. Jude 22 and 23. He says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. You know, every single week we come to this place, and I'm not, I'm not here just to help you have a slightly better life. That's really not my intent. I, I certainly believe that Jesus Christ, and he and he alone, is the great fullness of life that we can have. That he alone can, can give us the, the meaning and the purpose, the, the reason why we were created. He can restore that. I certainly believe that. And so I hope that your lives are improved, that you are more human after you leave this place than, than you were before. I certainly desire that. But I'm trying to snatch people from the fire. You know, I'm trying to snatch people from the fire. I'm trying to help people realize that they were created for something so much more than, than how they're living. And if they will not relinquish their right to rule, then God will have to be something will have to be done. And they are choosing an eternity apart from God. You know, we want the freedom to choose, but we don't really want the responsibility for our choices. We want to be king over our lives, but part of that is demanding that we always get our own way. And so deeply embedded within the heart of every self-reigning heart is this desire to be left alone. And if that is really what we want, if that is really our drive, is that, if that is what we desire truly at the end of the day to keep our thrones intact and our kingdoms intact, then God is going to give us what we ask for. Isolation. Solitary confinement. And we are locking that door from the inside. God has done everything that he possibly can to fix us and to bring us to himself But if we will not have it, God is going to let us live in isolation. And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how you see this playing out in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own life. I don't know what areas of your heart are still self-serving and self-reigning. But you need to know that if there are corners of your heart, or your whole heart is still self-reigning and self-serving, if that kingdom of yours and that throne is still intact my friends you're in a very dire situation a really dire situation I'm telling you guys hell is for real 
And if that's really what you desire at the end of the day, then God is going to let you go there. But if there's a part of you that hates the sin within you, if there's a part of you that looks at your condition and you say, man, I see it. I see the death in me. I see how, how, how my self-serving mentality and my self-reigning heart, I see how it causes chaos everywhere I go. I see that. I recognize that. I acknowledge that. Then, then right now, you need to say, God, I need it to be put to death. God, will you do your work in me? Will your spirit do your work in me, Father, to put that to death, to continue to take off the corners of my throne, Father, that are still intact and continue to chip them away? Will you do that in me, God? Please, will you do that in me? And you know what's going to begin to happen? God's going to do it in you. If you say that, if you pray that, if you acknowledge that with, a, with an honest and contrite heart, God is going to continue to work in you. He's going to begin to work in you. And he's going to bring you to himself and he's going to bring you to life and he's going to make in you the person you were created to be. A person that reflects God's love back to himself and begins to reflect his love onto the world around us. And you know what's going to happen? Not only is your life going to be restored, but all of the world is going to look on you and say, man, you're different. There's something about you that is, that is life-giving and joyful. What, what is it? And as we learn to reflect God and his love back to himself, we learn to reflect it onto the world, and then we have this greater capacity to love, and we surround families who house caught on fire, and we say, man, the love of God is compelling me to do something that I never thought I would do. It's to love another person. It's to care for another person outside of myself. And we begin to be the church. And only then do we begin to be the church doing what God has intended his people to do, doing what he has called us to do, reflecting his love back to himself. Love God, reflect his love back to others. Love others, he says, is my two greatest commandments. You guys on board with that? Let me pray. Father, we need you, God, to, to fill our hearts. Father, because any area of our heart that is still self-serving and self-reigning, Father, is really just an area of our heart that says, leave me alone, God. And if we persist, God, in that desire to be left alone, then I hate to think, Father, that you will give us what we, what, what we want. You will grant us our wish. And so, Father, not just for us, but all the world around us, Father, let us be a people who snatch others from the fire. Be merciful for those who doubt, Father, to not judge those who doubt, but to be merciful and to snatch others from the fire. Father, we are so grateful that you have decided to fix us rather than just merely throw us away without even a second thought. That you have done all that you can, Father, to fix us. And I pray that there would be many in this room who recognize their sinful condition and turn to you and say, God, I need you. Fill me, God. Restore in me the way and the person I was created to be. And that even now you begin to do good work in them, Father. Thank you for this challenging word, Father. I pray that it would impact us and that we would be different because of it. More honoring of you, Father. More like we were created to be. Loving you and loving others. Amen? Amen.